Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to the Old Testament, to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, that tiny little book. You may need to get a magnifying glass out to find it squeezed in, tucked in between all those little minor prophets near the back of the Old Testament. But we will be looking this evening in Jonah chapter 4 primarily, but I'm going to start in Jonah chapter 1. Let's be looking in the Bible together for these next few minutes. As you're turning to the book of Jonah, I will just say how great it is to see everybody tonight. I trust that you've had a pleasant afternoon and enjoyed this day and uh, had a good period of worship this morning and just delighted and glad to be able to be back out again and to have guests with us once again tonight as we worship God in spirit and in truth. I introduce this morning our 2021 Bible reading plan where we will be reading the works of the Old Testament prophets over the course of the next 12 months. And the first of those prophets, and let me just say it right now, if you didn't get one of the reading schedules, because I think they all got gobbled up way quicker than I expected, I printed another batch and there are more available in the foyer. But the first of those prophets that we are going to be reading this, this week is when it starts is probably one of the more famous prophets. We know his story pretty much from beginning to end, but he's arguably the most infamous of all of the prophets. Let's read about that guy named Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. This is verse 1. Notice how his story begins. Jonah 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Do you know, do you know where the Pharisees came from? I was actually asked that question a couple of years ago and was asked if I would deal with that in a Q&A night. But it's actually not a really fair question because the fact of the matter is no one is entirely sure of the origins of the Pharisees. There are no Pharisees in the Old Testament, but of course by the time you come to the New Testament, bam, they're all over the place and they're always getting sideways with Jesus. We wish that we knew more about the when and the where and the how that the Pharisees came to be. As best we can tell, it seems that they came to be during that time between the Testaments, that 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew. And while today we don't think very highly of the Pharisees, it is important for us to remember that in Jesus' day and time, the Pharisees were almost spiritual heroes, religious heroes. They were the most faithful they were the most super conservative. They were the ones who tried to follow the Word of God down to the very letter of the law. All of those things, I believe, are very commendable. But that's really not how we view and think about the Pharisees today, is it? No, we view the Pharisees as being that group of people who were known for, for being arrogant, for being obnoxious, for being full of themselves, for being very self-righteous. And while we may not know all the origin stories of where the Pharisees came from, I must tell you this evening that if you were to pin me down and just force me to give an answer on where did the Pharisees start, then I might actually nominate this guy right here in the book of Jonah. I would actually nominate Jonah as being the first Pharisee. Now, he may not be technically the first Pharisee, but in many ways it does seem as if Jonah is 
Well, he's kind of almost like the forefather of the Pharisees. He is very smug. He is very self-righteous. He has a we're so much better than you kind of attitude. The very kind of attitude that the Pharisees would later be known for. Now, normally whenever we talk about the book of Jonah, we talk about the story about how he eventually got to Nineveh. And of course, as we just read, God called him at the beginning of chapter 1 to go and to preach to the Assyrian people, that fearsome warlike people in Nineveh. And Jonah's response very promptly to that was, Nope, I don't want to do that. And so he set about the task of running in the opposite direction of Nineveh, heading in the wrong direction. And that, of course, leads to God inventing the first submarine that then swallowed Jonah up and ended up getting him pointed in the proper direction and finally getting him to where he needed to go to preach to the people of Nineveh. And of course, that's the story, that's the version of that story that most of us grew up learning and understanding. Maybe we even kind of capped all of that off by learning a little bit about, about the Ninevites and how they did repent and God did relent from disaster upon them. And we talk about how it kind of has a happy ending even though it starts kind of bad i got to tell you, it is what is recorded in that last chapter of Jonah that I'm afraid doesn't get nearly enough attention. Because that's the chapter of the book that really grabs my attention. In fact, I believe chapter 4 may be the reason that Jonah's story is recorded at all for us in the Scripture. Because what we find in Jonah chapter 4 is that self-righteous attitude that the Pharisees would later patent centuries later. And this evening what I want to do is I want us to just spend a few minutes here in Jonah, the fourth chapter. And I want us to notice the sharp contrast between that arrogant prophet who's sitting outside the city walls and on the other hand, the very gracious and kind and loving God who just won't quit on people. This story shows us in a powerful way God's great concern for for all people. Not just those people who were part of His covenant people, the Israelites, but even on fearsome warlike people like the Assyrians. And what I want us to see from this story is that Jonah Jonah does not seem to share that same concern that God has for all people. Jonah is just eat up with self-righteousness and what we need to see is the tremendous danger that that poses for you and I, even as the people of God today. I'm going to go ahead and confess to you right here at the outset of this lesson that way too often I am like Jonah. And I do not say that happily or gladly. There are others of the prophets that I read their stories and I think, man, I want to be more like that guy. I want to be more like Isaiah. I want to be more like Jeremiah. I want to be more like those individuals. But Jonah, eh, that's just not something to be proud of at all. I say that to my own shame. Because my attitude towards others is not always full of grace and care. Instead, my attitude for others is oftentimes filled with a prideful superiority. The word we might use would be the word Phariseeism. And what Jonah's story is going to show us is that while we may be right in our own religion... If we have precious little interest in helping others to be in a right relationship with God, then our own religion it is ultimately worthless... And it will lead us to finding ourselves sitting with Jonah, sulking under a tree, far, far away from God. Let's read a little bit. Let's set all that up. Let's read in chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 1. This is after we're told, the end of chapter 3 tells us that God saw the repentance of Nineveh and he relents from disaster. Jonah's reaction, chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew... I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Let's just stop right there and let's just start working right there. We think this evening about some of the attributes of self-righteousness, namely this first thing from the first three verses of chapter 4. And that is that the self-righteous... The self-righteous really don't care about others. Because the self-righteous, they begrudge God's compassion whenever it's extended toward others. Now, this right here is a great place for me to just kind of hit the pause button and let's just make sure that we all understand what we're talking about when we use that term self-righteous. By self-righteous, we're talking about someone who appears to be very, very pious and very holy. Here's someone who is very confident and very sure of themselves that that they've got it all together. They're right with God. They believe that they have put all the pieces together just perfectly. And as a result, this is the kicker here, they believe that that makes them better than others. It is that feeling. Self-righteousness is that feeling of superiority over others who may not be, as we might see them, as being as moral as we are, as pure as we are, as holy as we are. And that is something that the Pharisees in New Testament times, they were specifically known for. Would you hold your place in Jonah? In fact, just kind of maybe lay your marker in Jonah. Look in Luke 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable here about a tax collector and about a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. And do you remember the whole reason that Jesus told that parable in the first place? Luke tells us why he told the parable. Luke 18, look in verse 9. In Luke 18 and in verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's it. That's it. Trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Look at me. I've got it all put together. I look the part. Look how wonderful I am. Look at all the things that I am doing in the name of God. In fact, let me tell you about the great things I'm doing in the name of God. Aren't I something? And when you have that kind of inflated estimation of yourself, what does that naturally lead to? Well, Luke tells us, he goes on there at the end of verse 9, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And that's exactly what Jonah's problem is from the very beginning of his story. He did not want to go to Nineveh. He turns and runs from there just as far as he can, just as fast as he can. And while we might be inclined to say, well, well, maybe Jonah had a good reason for running away. I mean, would you want to go to Nineveh? Would you want to go and speak and preach to the Assyrians? The Assyrians are fierce, warmongering people. They were known for torturing people. It would be like us making a trip over to to Iraq to preach the gospel. Do you want to go down right in the middle of Iraq and preach the gospel? That's a scary situation. So maybe Jonah, maybe he's just a little bit afraid about this task. 
But actually, Jonah himself makes clear why it is that he didn't want to go. As you turn back now to Jonah chapter 4, look at verse 2 again. Jonah says, the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh is because I knew that God would end up forgiving those people. I knew that if I came and preached to them and they repented, I knew that God would spare them. Can I just spell that out in very plain terms? What chapter 4 verse 2 is saying is that Jonah hoped that all the citizens of Nineveh would have been slaughtered. That's what he wanted. He wanted them to be destroyed. He wanted that city nuked. He wanted the wrath of God to be just poured out on every single living creature in that place. And when that didn't happen, he got angry. He got hot. He objected to God's grace and mercy and compassion being extended to those people. i got to tell you, I'm not really sure of any place in Scripture that better captures the essence of treating others with contempt than what we're looking at here in Jonah the fourth chapter. So caught up in how right I am and how wrong those people are, Jonah didn't even want those people to repent. He didn't want them to be the recipients of God's mercy. I just want them to get what they deserve. That's how he felt about others. What kind of attitude is that? Yet it's very easy for us to stand back and point the finger at Jonah and point out what a bad guy he was for feeling that way. But I think it's fair for me to ask this evening, how do you feel about others? How do you feel when maybe you are scrolling through Facebook and one of your friends shares the live stream or maybe some other kind of religious material from the denominational church that they are a part of and that they are involved in, a church where error is being taught and is being practiced? How do you feel about that? When you see that, do you maybe just feel a little bit, a little bit morally superior? Well, I'll tell you what, I know the truth, and I know what's right, and that friend, that person, that guy, that woman, they are in error. They are religiously in error. Or how do you feel about this? How do you feel when you see homosexuals parading their homosexuality, whether it's on the news or you're scrolling through the internet and they're parading for their rights and they're flaunting their sin in a very open and overt sort of way. That kind of thing, I think rightfully so, it does, it does repulse us and it makes us aghast to see how that's making inroads in our society. But can I ask you, do we see that and maybe inwardly just kind of almost hope that God would just rain down His judgment on those people? Look at those disgusting, godless people. I wish God would just do with them what He did with the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that how we feel? We may not say it out loud like that. But we see the sins of others and I think sometimes we might actually feel the way that Jonah did. Or what about when maybe somebody comes forward during the invitation song and they come and they sit down on that front pew and they're weeping and they're sorrowful and they have come forward to confess sin, that they've not been the kind of Christian that they ought to be. Let me ask you, do we ever see that? And do we then kind of say to ourselves and tell ourselves, well, you know what, I've never had to make the walk down the aisle. I've never had to have people look at me and me bow my head in shame in that way. As if almost to say, God, I thank Thee that I am not like other sinners. Are we like Jonah? And are we like the Pharisees? Maybe what you and I need to be reminded of and be reminded of it more often is that we 
are recipients of God's grace. Even those of us who have been, quote unquote, raised in the church, those of us who have grew up in this since day one, those of us who have been very privileged in that way, even us, we are the recipients of God's amazing grace and that makes us no better than anyone else. Every single person who makes it to heaven someday, they will be there because they receive the compassion and the grace and the kindness of God. And that is a lesson that Jonah never quite seemed to get. Despite the fact that God was gracious to him again and again and again. How God graciously, God graciously made him a prophet. I mean, how many people get to be a prophet of God, a spokesperson for the Lord? Jonah got to have that. Despite the fact that God graciously uh, you know, didn't allow him to be swallowed by that fish and consumed and made into a permanent meal, instead God had the fish deposit him safely on dry land. That was God's grace. Or what about the fact that God continually put up with Jonah's whining and complaining and pettiness? That was grace. Jonah's whole life was just one long string right after another of God's grace being expressed in abundance. And instead of that making Jonah humble and making him thankful and making him look and see how I can extend that same grace to others, instead it made him stingy and it made him self-righteous. That's why I'm saying to you and I this evening that the moment that those thoughts and those feelings of I'm better than or I would never, or look at him or her, they're so bad. As soon as those feelings and those thoughts begin to well up within us, I need to know that that is a danger sign. It is a warning going off by the Lord that I might be guilty of doing what Jonah did where I am begrudging God's compassion on others. Which brings us to verse 4 of Jonah chapter 4 where the Lord responds to Jonah's little hissy fit. The Lord says in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? What the Lord is saying here is He's saying, Jonah, you stop and think about this. What are you doing here, Jonah? As one translation renders verse 4, the question is, is it right for you to be angry? Is it appropriate for you to be mad at me, at God, when it is God who is choosing to extend His mercy on whomever He wills. I think what that question reveals for us is this second danger, and that is that the self-righteous, the self-righteous hinder the very purposes of God. You know, you just can't have a self-righteous attitude and still do what's right. Those things are just, they're just incompatible. And the truth is, Jonah just really struggles to ever do what's right. When you read the book of Jonah this week, I think what you'll see is that the whole book is pretty much disobedience, 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 a little bit of obedience, and then disobedience, disobedience, disobedience. And so when God comes along and He asks this question in verse 4, it is designed to get Jonah to think, Jonah, you have no right to be angry. In fact, your bad attitude and your disobedience, it's just getting in the way. It is interfering with my plan to save these people, to save all people. And historically, that does seem to be something that the Jews, by and large, just regularly struggled to understand. Do you remember the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12? Just go back and grab those. In Genesis chapter 12, 
God made some promises to the forefather of the Jewish nation, Abraham. And, and these promises that he gives in Genesis 12, they really shape and they guide the entire rest of the narrative of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, after he calls Abraham to come out of his country, God then says to Abram in this, in verse 2, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Then look at this. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see that there in verse 3? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just... Not just your family, not just one specific family, not just those who are of Jewish ancestry, their family. Having said that though, by the time of the New Testament, the Jews, they would read that verse and what did they take it to mean? They took it to mean, in you, all Jews of the earth will be morally superior to everybody else because God doesn't care about anybody else. That's the way the Jews read that by the time of the Pharisees. But that's not what God's plan was. God's plan from the very beginning was to provide a way for all people to be blessed, all people to be saved. God had always been working to bring about salvation for the whole world, not just a select group of folks. Everybody has the availability to be saved, even wicked Assyrians. But Jonah, Jonah's so full of himself, that he doesn't care about other people. That's point number one. And furthermore, Jonah then, because of his self-righteousness, he gets in the way and he ends up complicating what God is trying to get done. His own self-righteousness is hindering God's purposes. It kind of reminds me of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 5. Would you find Luke chapter 5, please? In Luke 5, this is when Jesus was beginning to assemble His apostles. And we're told here about the call of Levi, Matthew. Matthew, who was a tax collector, someone who would have certainly been at odds with Jewish people. In Luke chapter 5, we're told this beginning in verse 27. In Luke 5 verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, He rose and followed him. And Levi made for him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Verse 30 now. But the Pharisees and their scribes, they grumbled at His disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees hated Jesus because of His open association, not just with certain Jews, but His open association with, with everybody. And the reason that Jesus wanted to associate with everybody was because that was God's plan to try and draw everybody to Himself through the cross. And while what happened there in Matthew chapter 5 should have made those Pharisees happy, look, Jesus is extending extending an open welcome. He's extending some hospitality and some fellowship in a sense to people who are outside of the covenant of God. He's taking an interest in those folks. Instead of being excited and happy about that, what those Pharisees did is they stood by and they criticized and they dissected the work of the Lord until ultimately all of their criticism succeeded in rallying people and it led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now even though crucifying Jesus didn't stop God's kingdom, it didn't stop God's work from being accomplished, when you study in the book of Acts, 
like we're doing on Wednesday night right now, who are the ones who are continually and constantly standing in the way and hindering the growth of the kingdom? Who's there at seemingly every turn griping and complaining and fussing and trying to put a stop to the spread of New Testament Christianity? Who is it? It's these people. It's Judaizers. It's Pharisees who are so self-righteous they are frustrating the very purposes of God. And while once again it's really easy for us to kind of stand back and we kind of we shake our heads at Jonah and the Pharisees, isn't it true? Isn't it true that sometimes we end up acting like them and we end up damaging the work that God is trying to accomplish? I can't tell you how many times I have encountered some loose-lipped Christian who popped off at a non-Christian or maybe somebody who thought that they were a Christian but they were not actually a Christian. They popped off with their words and with their attitude because they were convinced that I am so right and this person that I'm talking to, they're so wrong and I'm going to set them straight and the way I'm going to do that is by talking to them in a condescending manner so much so that the way that they end up presenting the gospel to that person causes that person to be repelled from the kingdom of God instead of being drawn to the kingdom of God. I remember several years ago, this was not here, this was in another congregation, where there was a crotchety old brother who went to a young lady after services who had visited with us in our assembly. And this young lady was not a Christian. She had very little exposure to the church or even being in any kind of a church setting. And this old brother got in her face and pointed his finger at her and he scolded her for how ill-behaved he thought that her children were during the worship services. And I'll remind you that her children had little to no experience ever being in a worship service themselves. And I am sure that that brother, as he went and he told her what for, I am sure that he thought he was doing the right thing. I am sure that he thought that he was saying things that just needed to be said to her. But you know what ended up happening? That young lady, after that Sunday, she never came back. And you know what? I don't blame her. After all, who wants to go to church with Jonah? I don't want to go to church with Jonah. When we are harsh, and we are abrasive, and we are mean-spirited, and we are just determined to expose people's Bible ignorance, and we talk down to them as if they are children, does that draw people to Jesus? Does that make people want to be a part of what it is that we are offering? No. No, it pushes people away. And it ends up stifling the very purposes of God to save those people from their sins. Can I borrow this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2? In 1 Peter chapter 2, this, is, this verse tells us what we are to be all about. This is, this is what ought to define us. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9, Peter says, But you, Christian... You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Wow, those are, those are some very privileged descriptions, aren't they? Wow, it's the kind of thing. You stop and think about those long enough, it'll start giving you the big head. Wow, God really thinks very highly of us. But don't get all caught up in yourself. Don't become a Pharisee about that. Because the reason you have been chosen in that way, the reason you have been called, verse 9 continues on, is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Yes, we are saved. But we are not saved in order to flex our spiritual superiority. 
No, we are saved in order to play a role, to play a part in God's plan to bring others out of darkness and into the light. What that passage and many others says is that God works through us. God works through Christians. And what that means is that means that we need to cooperate with God. We don't need to conduct ourselves in such a way that would end up nullifying the very purposes of God. Now as I turn back to Jonah chapter 4, there is one final danger that I believe is very evident in Jonah's pharisaical attitude. And it is perhaps the thing that is the most damning and the most dangerous of all. Because after Jonah throws his big temper tantrum, we're told in verse 5, pick the story up in verse 5, Jonah then went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Look at there, there's, there's even more of God's grace. Here's this guy acting like a, like a baby, and God keeps being graceful to him and gives him all kinds of blessings. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it to grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is maybe the saddest part of the entire story. Because not only does the self-righteous person hurt others, and not only does the self-righteous person hurt God, but the self-righteous person... They actually hurt themselves the very most. Because look at Jonah. He's sitting outside the city. He's pouting under the heat of the scorching sun. Here is a man who had been, I'll say again, chosen by God. And he should have been rejoicing. He should have been flying the banner that says, Mission accomplished! We did it, Lord! We did it. We preached the Word and these people repented. This is amazing. This is wonderful. He should have been right there in the middle of the city. He should have been leading the people in worship. He should have been leading them into even further revival. This whole experience from chapters 1, 2, and 3, it should have been the kind of thing that would have drawn Jonah closer to the Lord. Even though he went through some pretty deep valleys, God saw him through it, and he should have saw that as, man, that's awesome. God's been so good to me. should have caused him to appreciate God's kindness and God's favor more than he ever had. But instead, when we come to chapter 4, Jonah and God are, they're not close. They are miles apart. As Jonah is shouting at the Lord, and he is stubborn, and he is full of pride. Do you remember what James says about pride in James the fourth chapter? In James chapter 4, when we get full of ourselves, when we get filled up with pride, James reminds us in verse 6, this is what happens. James 4 verse 6, he says, therefore, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God opposes 
the proud. Wow, that's, that is strong language. Have you ever thought about that, the significance of that? That I could position myself in such a way that God is actually opposed to me? That I, in a sense, am fighting against the Lord? I am cutting myself off from the author of life? Self-righteousness, it wrecks our relationship with the Lord. You know, I've often thought as I think about Jonah's story, isn't it ironic... Isn't it ironic that the Ninevites, they ended up humbling themselves. And as a result, they enjoyed a great relationship with the Lord, at least as the story closes. But the very prophet who was sent to call them to repent, he has puffed himself up so much that by the end of this story, he's the one who is separated from the Lord. And that's certainly not unlike the way it was in New Testament times. The Pharisees those guys who knew their Bibles better than anybody else, they didn't even recognize that the Messiah was in their midst, that they were talking to the Messiah that the Old Testament talks about. The devil took what was essentially their greatest strength, that is their knowledge of the Scriptures, and he used it against them so that they ended up becoming Jesus' worst enemies. In fact, Jesus himself would say in Matthew 15 and verse 8 concerning those Pharisees that they were far They were far, far from the Lord. And then what about today? What about us? I think I've known some Jonas. And as I said at the outset of the lesson, I think there's been moments in my life where I've seen some definite shades of Jonah in my own life. But I've known some Jonas where their greatest strength, brothers and sisters in Christ, who their greatest strength was upholding the pattern for New Testament Christianity. And they were willing to fight to uphold that pattern and to preserve that pattern and to speak boldly for that pattern. Oftentimes ended up having the exact opposite effect that it should have because it made them prideful. It made them arrogant like the Pharisees, like Jonah, where their religion to them was little more than an excuse to browbeat and to put others down and to chase others away. And as a result, what becomes of those people? What becomes of those people is they become like Jonah. They are isolated. In fact, I know entire churches, and they're not big churches, but I know churches that have isolated themselves because of their pharisaical approach to New Testament Christianity. And the reason they are isolated is because no one wants to be around that. No one wants to be a part of that kind of religion. They have cut themselves off from the Lord. They have cut themselves off from others. They are far from the kingdom of God because their relationship with God is not marked by things like love and trust and joy. They might as well. They might as well be sitting out under that plant, scorched by the heat, all alone. That's where self-righteousness leads. You know, God can do some amazing things. God's Word is able to convict Ninevites. God is able to relent from disaster even against the most ungodly. But you and I will have to decide as to whether or not we want to be a part of that. We want to be in the middle of that. Or whether instead we want to be cut off from God and cut off from all of His blessings all because of our self-righteousness. Now, as I kind of step back and as I look at Jonah in the big picture, and hopefully all of us as we're all reading the book of Jonah this week, uh, the truth is we will not find the word Pharisee in the text anywhere. You read all four chapters, you won't see that word anywhere in there. 
There are no official card-carrying Pharisees anywhere in the Old Testament to my knowledge. But I'll say once again, I think Jonah makes a pretty good case that the spirit of Phariseeism, it didn't begin in that time between the Testaments. And sadly, sadly it didn't end in Jesus' day. As long as there are men and women, Christians, who congratulate themselves for how obedient they've been, as long as there are men and women who opine about how much better they are than others, Phariseeism will remain alive and well in the 21st century and beyond. And if we think, if we're telling ourselves right now, well, Josh, that that kind of attitude, that that kind of thing could not possibly exist today. It could never exist amongst us, amongst the people of God today. Then we have been badly misunderstood about what self-righteousness really is. And we may end up finding ourselves acting just like Jonah. And what I hope this evening is that I hope that we will be more alert to these dangers so that we do not allow history to repeat itself once again. Now, if you're using a songbook, you can be turning that to the song that's been selected as a song of invitation. We're going to be singing number 289 in just a moment, When I See the Blood. And we are extending that invitation to anyone and everyone who needs to respond to the call of the gospel. We are not, this evening going to act as if somehow God's grace and God's salvation is only for a select few. It's only for those of us who maybe kind of been born into this. No. The gospel is for all. And so we are extending the invitation in an open, big kind of way to anyone who is ready to submit their lives to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Can we encourage you tonight to confess your faith in Jesus as Lord, to repent, turn away from sin, turn to God, and then be plunged in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's called baptism. That's what the Bible teaches that a person needs to do in order to become a New Testament Christian. You can then join God's family, be a part of a local church, be involved in the work and the efforts that are being put forth in order to help us and to help others to get to heaven. Can we help somebody tonight to take that critical step? Brother or sister, it may very well be that there is sin in your life that needs to be repented of. You've not been living as you should as a child of God. We're encouraging you this evening to do something about the state of your soul. It may very well be that this stuff we've talked about tonight, about self-righteousness and about having a haughty spirit and a haughty attitude, it may be that some of those ideas have, have struck a chord because you realize that you are guilty of those things. You may repent of that and take care of that just right where you're sitting between you and God. But it may be that you want some help with that. You want the encouragement of others to just serve God in a better way and to, to get those thoughts and those, that way of thinking just out of your life. Let us help you. Let us encourage you. Let's talk together. Let's share together. Let's help one another so that we can all go to heaven when this life is over. Whatever your need may be, we're encouraging you to take advantage of this moment right now. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.